boy's got utter belief in it. And somehow she's found the acceleration. Welcome everyone to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. The 2023 indoor track season is in full swing. We were in Boston the last two weekends and we'll be in New York this weekend for a loaded Milrose Games. There is a lot to talk about from the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix, which was held on Saturday. Woody Kincaid kept winning. Noah Lyles upset Trayvon Bromel and Heather McLean got a big win on her home track. The London Marathon fields are out and they're ridiculously good. Stop me if you've heard this before, but some are calling the women's field the best marathon history. And it includes Kira D'Amato versus Emily Sisson, a debut by Sifan Hassan, and many of the world's best female marathoners. Mo Farah also running on the men's side against Candice Michele. We'll take a quick peek ahead to Milrose, which is this weekend. Thing Mo won't be there, but a ton of other US stars will be. Plus, Grant Fisher is going to France to run at Leaven next week in the 3,000 meters. Will Yari Nagusa's American record go down already? 44 former Colorado runners to come out to publicly defend coaches Mark Wetmore and Heather Burrows as the program is in the midst of an investigation following a complaint by a former athlete about eating disorders. Rojo weighs in on that story, and stay tuned at the very end of the episode as we are joined by Hoka One One, NAZ Elite Executive Director Ben Rosario. Last year, we had Ben on the pod during Super Bowl week, and if you listen to him, you made a lot of money. We get his gambling picks and an update on NAZ Elite to start 2023. I am Jonathan Galt. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Robert and Weldon Johnson. And I don't think I even mentioned the most important story of the week, guys. Brendan Hove Albion against Crystal Palace, Saturday morning. The Seagulls in the midst of our greatest ever season. Crystal Palace, I don't know, you're so far behind the, down the table. Well, then I'm not even paying attention to them. But apparently they will play against us on Saturday. Are you ready for a beating? For those of you who came to watch and listen to track and field, John and I are fans of two obscure English Premier League soccer teams who are fierce rivals. They're playing this weekend. And there's a chance John and I, one of us may not be at Milrose. John is taking the early train to get to New York so he could watch the game. I think now my plan, I may pick him off the train at Stanford, bring him to my house, and watch the game at my house. But this could get nasty. I've never... In English soccer, fans of opposing teams are not supposed to sit with one another. I hope the fact he'd been the home of my wife and my two-year-old daughter would keep his behavior, make it acceptable when his team suffers a shock defeat. But I'm not sure. No, I mean, frankly, well, then these games are always close no matter where each team is in the table. So I am expecting a tough fixture. I'd like, I'd love a win, obviously, but even if we lose, I will go my, do my job. I'll get on the train to Milrose and we'll watch that one. Robert, you don't really care about our little soccer rivalry. I hope you're doing well today, though. we got a lot of running stuff to talk about. Doing great, doing great. John, when do we leave for Australia for World Cross Country? That's next weekend. I just realized you're leaving on Tuesday, I think. I forgot to ask Walden for permission to buy a ticket. I forgot to ask my wife if I can go. I'm not really that optimistic. 
I'll be there with you, but I'll have to work, work on it. Anyways, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, we want to hear from you. You can join the show. Pick up the phone, 844-LETS-RUN, 844-538-7786. And if you want to watch that Leave and Meet, you can basically watch it for free if you have a VPN on YouTube. So get the Let's Run VPN that we use. Go to letsrun.com slash VPN, risk-free trial, letsrun.com slash VPN. And can you give the name of that VPN to our? No, I don't want to use the name of the VPN because then they're going to go to that. They're going to Google that name and go get it. Someone else is going to get the money. If they go to Electron.com VPN, they will see the name of the VPN. You click on the link and we get paid. It's NordVPN. NordVPN. I think you can get the money back guarantee, maybe a better trial rate if you go through us. Go to Electron.com slash VPN. But you started with a little bit of fake news because you said. Will Grant Fisher get the American record? When I got up this morning and saw or dropped the kid off at school and saw a text from you, John, saying that Grant Fisher was running and leaving, I was thrilled because I was like, is Bowerman Track Club, like, have they been shut down? Like, are they, are they going to raise? I haven't heard what they're doing. We kind of now know what they're doing this in the next week or two. And American record, that's going to be a disappointment if that's all he does. Like, I'm fully expecting Grant Fisher to break the world record in this race. Whoa. Indoor world record. Now, if he goes over the absolute, so the indoor world record for the 3,000 is 7,2490, Daniel Coleman. When you mention Daniel Coleman 3,000, people often think of his 7,20 outdoor record, which is viewed as one of the greatest records in the books. But, you know, admittedly, last week I did say that Grant Hall, I would break the hurdles record at New Balance Indoor Grand Prix. That didn't happen. But this one I'm feeling pretty good about because BTC, they don't do things half-assed. They don't have a race unless they're ready to go. Why would he be going to Europe unless he was running to run super fast? And if Jared Nagus, admittedly my boy, can run 728.24, don't you think that Grant Fisher is 3.26 seconds better than him? I'm not certain he is because 728 is very fast, but I've also learned to trust Rojo record predictions. Robert very confidently said Grant Fisher would break the American record for 3,000 in Monaco last summer. I doubted him and I was proven wrong. Grant did that. And I do think your logic here is sound, Robert. There is a very big 3,000 meters in the United States on Saturday at the Milrose Games. Cooper who is a member of Bowerman Track Club with Grant Fisher, is running that race, as are a number of other pros. And yet they are eschewing that to send him to Leven, which is a famous, famously fast track. The two of the three fastest times ever run in the Indoor 3000 came on that track in 2021. I kind of get it. Like, why would you send him out there if it wasn't to attack an incredibly t- fast time? And Milrose probably is, I don't even know if Milrose would go 728. It'll probably be slower than that. But I kind of get the logic. And one other thing I'll point out, Berahu Aragawi, who last year took a run at the indoor world record in the 3K, he ran 726 in Karlsruhe. He also ran 726 at Milrose. He beat Grant Fisher in that race. But if you're thinking maybe Grant Fisher's a little fitter than he was last year outdoors, I mean, we, who knows who he's going to run against Levin? 
I could see it. I, I don't think it's totally out of the picture. I don't think it's going to be a disappointment if he runs like 726 or 727 and misses the world record. But I think that is a possibility. Okay, this is crazy because Let's Run.com has been around, check the calendar here, 23 years. I'm not sure. I'm sure that it's happened, but is there ever been discussion of American distance runners and world record in the same conversation since then? I feel like maybe we, oh, well, I, I can think of a thing, Mo. We've had that conversation. But it's just a great thing to worry about. I mean, one thing I noticed, Mr. Woody Kincaid, who is slated to run Milrose, I think. Still this weekend, he's not at the pre-race press conference. He was only two seconds off the world record for the indoor 5K, John. I mean, if you're going to come that close, you might as well go two seconds faster and get the damn world record. I, I didn't realize Yard Nagus, just four seconds off. I mean, when you're getting that close to a record in a sort of longer distance race, maybe four seconds, two seconds, Easier said than done, but good problem to worry about. Well, I'm upset, though. The one thing I'm annoyed about is that I'm going to be on a plane to Australia, I think, while this race is happening. Because the race is on the 15th, and I arrive in Australia the morning of the 16th. I leave Boston on the 14th, so I basically lose the whole of the 15th to travel. So if there is a world record, you guys are going to have to be on your own covering this. Wait, maybe I should fly to Paris. This is what I need. My wife actually, how far is this from Paris? I think my wife may be in Paris at this time. Maybe I should send her as a correspondent. No, I will say that it is kind of a bummer that we don't get to see Grant Fisher against Woody Kincaid at Milrose. I don't think they're enemies or anything. We have Woody on the podcast. He said he's still on pretty good terms with the members of the Balbin Track Club, but that would be kind of fun to see given Woody is least temporarily left the group, see him take on Coupetier and Grant Fisher in a 3K at Milrose. A few things here, guys. Weldon asked since Let's Run founded, have we ever had an American discussion of an American in a world record? How quickly he forgets. When Let's Run was founded, the marathon world record, well, I guess he was Moroccan at the time, Khalid Kanuchi, but he set it as an American in 2002, he lowered his own world record from 205.42 to 205.38. But, look, I'm not saying if he gets it that it's some end-all and be-all. This record has stood since 1998. It's older than Let's Run. But the guy that almost got it in 2001, getting it Wally, is a lot like Grant Fisher. 2021. Yes. What do getting it Wally and Grant Fisher have in common? Neither of them have a global medal. They're both extremely fast, and they both never medal. You're correct, John. Wally, 22 years of age, has run 724 indoors, 0.98, just eight hundredths of a second off the world record. He's run 1253 outdoors. Not only that, he's a steeplechaser. 
So you think with that he would be winning gold medals in the steeplechase. Everyone who says that the steeplechase is for has-beens who can't do it in other events, this guy's pretty good at the other events, and he still can't medal in the steeple. Fourth in 2021, fourth in 2022, fourth in 2019. So, Mr. Wally, if you're listening to the podcast or if one of your friends is listening to it and, trans and translating it to you in Amarek or whatever you speak, I will coach you to a medal. I promise you I will pay you $50,000. If you agree to be coached by John Kellogg and myself, and you do not medal before the 2027 Worlds, I mean, after the 27 Worlds, so we get four cracks at it. Well, then what do you think the odds are that any professional runner ever decides to take Robert up on his coaching offer? Let me interrupt here. Weldon spent some time with running with the Buffalo's author, Chris Lear, this weekend. We should have Chris on the podcast because Chris wrote a book about Mark Wetmore, yet he was doing what to Welton this weekend? What I've heard through the grapevine. Robert, you're kind of far to follow here. The odds of any pro taking him up in the offer are zero unless he actually reaches out to a pro, presents some credentials, says, here's what I've done, here's some case studies. But I did see Chris this weekend. He did not go to the meet. I saw Bill Rogers was at the meet, but Chris was... Reminiscing how he's never felt better in training and really surprised himself, except when he's training under the auspices of John Kellogg. Sometimes people easier is better. Woody Kincaid seems to be finding that out at times. Can't go to the well every single day, everybody. I didn't do the double thresholds, but it sounds like similar concept. Speaking of which. I mean, the times are crazy. 90 collegians broke four minutes in the mile last year, if you count altitude conversions and flat track conversions. I was talking to a college coach earlier this week. 90 different people? Correct. Oh, my God. You're going to be a sub four-minute miler and you're like 85th in the country? Yeah, we're only at 50 this year. I wonder if it's down this year or what's going on, but... His coach had a number of interesting things to say, wide variety of topics. Am I allowed to say something negative about a high school star? Doesn't think Connor Burns has much of a future, despite breaking four as a junior. But that wasn't really what we were talking about. I was, I was saying something about these times being ridiculous. And then he said, well, the BU track is fast. I mean, super fast. It's faster than most indoor tracks. So he, was, he or she was saying... You know, you got to discount BU a little bit. But in general, he's like, the shoes are amazing. He's like, the guys in the team claim they can go out and run a 10-mile tempo run, 51 minutes, and it feels easier on their feet than running 55 minutes if they're wearing the regular trainers. Yeah, that's one of the things when I was at BU a couple weeks ago for the Nagus Kincaid records, someone pointed out to me that they thought not only were athletes going to get a bit boost from racing in these shoes but also training in them now we've got a couple of years of training in them all of it adds together to produce where we are right now and that's why we have to sort of reassess what all these times mean anyway anyway one last thing i was just we had to delay the show because i was talking to a top i guess i can say who run ccg co-founder chris catton one of the top online high school coaches in the country he said he spoke to a college coach who said because i told him that's my story about the shoes yeah, a college coach told me they can race cross country race on Saturday, lace up in the super shoes on Sunday, 
and just hammer the long run. And that was one of the things I never did at Cornell. Like traditionally back in the day, people raced on Saturday, ran long on Sunday, and then tried to do a workout on Monday, which is absurd. Like you can't have three hard days in a row. Like we would do our long runs on weekends. We didn't race truly long run, but people are getting away with it nowadays. It sounds like. All right, let's talk about the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix. I was there. Weldon was there. Sebco was there. Terrell Owens was there. I didn't realize that, but found that out after the fact. I had a lot of fun. This meet, there were some exciting races. The men's and women's miles were both great. There were a couple other races, a little underwhelming, but not every race is going to be a home run. That's okay. The 60 was terrific. Noah Lyles took down Trayvon Bromel, 6.51 personal best. He was very pumped about that. And just in general, I thought this was a vision of what track and field could be in the United States. It is close to sold out. Officially, it was sold out. I did see some empty seats there, but it's interesting. My sister went to the meet, and her friend was just going to turn up on the day and buy tickets. And her friend turned up a little bit before the meet, said, can I buy a general admission ticket? There weren't any available. She was literally turned away because the meet was so popular. I think she could have sprung for some yeah, VIP package on the home straight, but didn't want to do that. So that to me was a good sign. This is a really nice track. It was built for spectators. There were a lot of fans in the building. They made a decent amount of noise. Seemed to look good on TV. A number of big stars showed up. Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni. Now, there was Rob, she ran. We weren't sure if she was going to run. She ran the 60. It was before the TV window, but they show a race on TV. But in, in general, I thought this was this was pretty great. I, I, it made me optimistic. Am I? Is this the right takeaway, or does someone want to come rain on my parade? I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was well to went. You guys went. We get, you got to celebrate something new, exciting for the sport, the facility. But yes, if I'm going to be cynical, I'll rain in your prayer. You're saying this is what the track can be. Track can be a successful niche sport in this country. We're, we're super excited that we got 5,000 people to go to one track meet in a major metropolis. I mean, how many college basketball teams pulled in 5,000 in Boston this weekend or hockey teams? I don't know how big the hockey, maybe it's not quite that, but you get my point. I do get your point, and I agree with it to a point. Like, if we had the final day of USA's in Eugene, and there were only 4,000 fans in a 11,000-seat stadium, we would say, this doesn't look good. But we had the New York Grand Prix last year outdoors on Randall's Island, and I don't think they got 4,000 for that. That was even fewer people than this, and York's got way more people living in it in Boston. So, yeah. Look, it, it, but it's should be like it's an insane accomplishment. But to me, I think it's good. It's a good new track. We had a number of fans there. I don't think track and field. It's probably never going to get to the point where we're selling we're selling twenty thousand tickets for a meet. But I think this was a small, a nice little win. And I think it's great that it's sold out. You want people to have to buy their tickets to be afraid it might be sold out. Plan ahead. Go to the meet. I've been there. My damn bachelor party. We are in Miami. There's a big line outside this club. Not a big line, but a small one. We're like, wow, we better go there. Not now, guys. Got to hold on a minute. Like 15, 20 minutes, we'll let you in. 
Okay. We get in, the damn club's completely empty. Guys just, part of the appeal was to make it look like it was sold out. Still upset about it. I'm impressed. Robert, you got married in your late 30s, right? You were still lining up to go to a club and your bachelor party? I mean, I'm impressed by that. John, we don't want to go into my personal life. I mean, I know there's been a lot. Yeah, of yeah. We, oh, oh, we don't want to go into your personal life. Yes, I'm sure. You bring up mine all the time. But when we talk about yours, that's crossing the line. I understand. A lot of marriages out there in books and Instagram. And uh, mine's happily married. We're moving to a new house together. But uh, I'm, I'm starting to feel like an old man reading some of the stuff on the internet about some other prominent people's marriages and what is or isn't. Yeah, I'm going to nip that one in the bud. All right. All right. Well, then you were there. You drove up from Connecticut from this meet and you weren't alone. John Anderson of ESPN, I saw him in the stands. He wasn't even covering this thing. He drove up as a fan to watch this. You drove up, you did have a credential. What was your experience? I'm glad I went. And a shout out to the Let's Run visitor I saw. Signed an autograph on the way in. That doesn't happen too often. That person drove up from Rhode Island. I don't know if, I don't know if Boston people considered coming in from Rhode Island like a big deal, but for a person who grew up in Texas, if you come from another state, it's a big deal. It's a long way. And when I was getting my credential, the lady's like, look, we have these seats available. I think there were $75 seats past the finish line. So the most extensive seats they had, not right on the finish, a little bit past it. So virtually sold out. So that's great. Great facility. I hope fans keep coming back. 4,000, 5,000, it's a low bar, as we're saying. and we, we weren't getting that anywhere in the United States. We haven't been. Milrose has, like, no fans. I mean, they can't fit in the building. That that building is very small. Side note, I think I read, John, on the press releases from Milrose that the Armory is a state-of-the-art facility. No. The track, I love the Armory. You could say the track might be state-of-the-art. Okay, the track, the but... Armory itself is, like, yeah, a very old building where they open the windows and to like let in cold air because it gets too hot or something. Like, how many the- seats of the armory can you see the entire track? I can't imagine it's very many. Yeah, because the most seats are actually behind like the hammer cage at the end. But the facility's beautiful. New Balance did a fabulous job. There's a bar underneath it, and shout out to everyone we saw in the bars. We had to exit the stadium and go across the street to the pizza place across from the bar and wave at all the celebrities in the bar. As we were working, plenty of restaurants and stuff around there. I mean, our place, John, wasn't that full. But, you know, a great weekend. Having said that, let's let's keep doing it. Let's make sure it's full. Let's keep entertaining fans. One thing I said before this meet started was, I'm like, if they don't sell this thing out, we need to have new people in charge or at least consulting with the people because... Mark Wetmore's Global Athletics, they do a good job. They put on these meets, but they put on the New York City meet. Like, that's not full. I'm not blaming them in particular. I'm blaming everyone in track and field. But what if we bring on the people who do the ice capades and say, like, what are you doing? How are you getting people to come out? How are you entertaining them once the action is on? Maybe they, someone outside of track and field to say, hey, when this event's going on, you could be doing this. The music should be louder. Whatever it is, try to entertain people. I think the better question would be for your sister. She went to this meet. She's interested in track, but like, what did she think of it? What did her friends think about it? I didn't ask her what her friend thought about it, but 
she said that she liked there was the pole vault going on while the track events were happening, so she always had something to watch. She was on the back straight, so she could see the pole vault right in front of her. She enjoyed seeing some of these star athletes that she hasn't got to see before. Grant Holloway, um, Heather McLean, Sydney McLaughlin, Lavroni, you know, all that sort of thing. And I asked her, would you come back? Because she, she she's lived in Boston for a few years. She never went to the old meet at the Reggie Lewis Center, but this time around, she said she saw some of the athletes like Emma Coburn or Grant Holloway promoting it on Instagram that they were running, and she decided to show up. So I think that's a good... Th- like, sometimes I see all these... We'll see certain meets say, you know, come up with a promotion. Every athlete who runs that meet will just share the same post. But I think if you could just go to pretty much every athlete who's competing and say, hey, can you do one post and just personalize it a little bit, saying... I'm competing at this meet, you know, a month from now. Get your tickets now or something. Capitalize on their social media followings, I think, will be good. But to the credit of Mark Wetmore and Global Athletics, he told me two-thirds of the people who turned out for this meet were first-time ticket buyers for this event. And this event's been going on for almost 30 years in Boston. So that, to me, whatever approach they took in 2023, I think it worked well and hopefully it keeps going. John, that shows a couple of things. That shows that Reggie didn't feed seat many people no it's about half as many that's correct well then that's true if that number is accurate and maybe they have a new ticketing system and they can't track everybody because it seems like it might be more than that but the other thing is like this is a beautiful facility it's much more enjoyable to actually go to a meet at something like this the reggie is sort of more we're sort of like more going to a meet at a glorified gym right the armor has some historical charm but it's like not that enjoyable of a place to sit up. I mean, you're right on the track of the armor. You're like two rows deep, so it's a different experience. I highly advise everyone to go to Milrose. Like that place is unbelievable, but in a different way, right? So this is sort of an intimate, modern stadium where it, it seems like a real event. Is the atmosphere well done a lot better than the one, Reggie, when I went there? I don't know. People yell. I mean, we're in a tiny little event. And people are yelling at the track. It seems like it. You know, there's times... Uh, when there's races going on and people aren't yelling that much, I would say yes, for sure, right, John? There's more people. Well, I yeah, the more people was nice. I think the atmosphere for almost any indoor track meet can get quite good though, just because if there is a great race going on and the crowd gets into it, the space is so much more confined, it's going to be good. But see, I was just happy to look at the back straight and the home straight, and they're full, basically the entire meet. That was a really nice thing to have. It's Shall a good we visual. Talk- yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Like this LA meet that they're promoting in California with Bobby Kersey's in charge and the USATF's putting on this spring. That's another thing. Pack that thing out. That's going to be a lot harder because Drake Stadium is a lot bigger than an indoor track. But if you have lots of fans in the stands, it looks better. The atmosphere feels better. All right, let's talk about the action. I was driving a car when this meet was going on. I heard most of it. I was playing my YouTube TV through the car speaker. Didn't see a lot of the races live, but who do we think was the biggest winners and losers? I don't think we need to go race by race. I mean, part of my complaint listening to us, like a couple of these races, I just knew what was going to happen. I knew Laura Muir was going to destroy everybody. And when your PR is 20 seconds faster than everyone, you're going to beat everybody. I mean, but kind of, Trivia note here, how often do you win a race when your last lap is the slowest lap of the race? She kind of just tied up, still won. That's how much better she was in males. But anyways, 
some of these other races, I think there was something significant. To me, the biggest winner of the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix was Noah Lyles. Look, this guy's always in the media. He's almost like he's forced down our throat a little bit. Like NBC anointed him as a star before the 2020 Olympics, and then he didn't produce and win. Then he wins last year and says, that's what I do is win. I'm like, no, you win sometimes, but not all the time. But maybe it was a depression meds or whatever. It seems to be a new thing. But now he's talking 100, 200 gold this year. And I'm, I'm thinking, we heard this big talk before the Olympics and it didn't happen. Are we doing it again? That's what I was thinking heading into the year. And then heading into this meet, I think in your preview, or maybe I Googled it, John, I look up. He raced last weekend before the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix. Didn't win it. In fact, he lost to his brother, which I don't think has happened in years. Josephus Lyles. So he goes from third on his training group to this meet with the former world record holder, right? World champion, Trayvon Bramel, 2016 world indoor champ. And he wins it. So I don't know, like what happened last week? How did he go from third losing to his brother to winning this thing? Super impressive. So now I'm actually thinking this 100, 200 double, maybe it's not just talk. Yeah, that's the thing, Robert. It wasn't just 2021. Remember last year, he wanted to do the double. And then he saw Arian Knighton run 19-4 in April. He was like, shoot, I might not even win the 200. I better really make sure I'm focused on the 200. So he dropped the 100 plans and just focused on the two. Obviously, that worked out very well. He won the world title and an American record. But now Lyles is saying, okay, this is the year. I feel like I've pretty much mastered the 200. I'm ready to add the 100 to his plate. He got a big test in Trayvon Bromel. Trayvon Bromel said he ran badly in this race. I mean, 651, that's that's still a decent time for Trayvon Bromel. It's not that far off his personal best of 647. And Trayvon Bro beat him out of the blocks, but Noah transitioned well and his closing speed was was terrific. And normally he has to wait till later in 100 or 200 for that to come on. He was able to make it work in a 60. So he was very excited. He was celebrating a lot for a 60-meter indoor race in February. There's still a long, long way to go until the Outdoor World Championships in August. Things can change. But yes, I agree. This was a personal best by four hundredths of a second, which is not nothing in the 60. He beat one of the best starters in the world in a 60-meter race. I think this was a very good sign for Noah Lyles. And it's going to be fascinating. I love that he's trying to do the 100 this year, and I hope he sticks with it all the way through the trials. It should be easier for him this time because he has the buy in a 200. He doesn't have to run that event at USA's. But you add him to Fred Curley, Bromel, Marvin Bracey-Williams, and Marcel Jacobs, who, by the way, opened up in 657 on Saturday, him coming back. I'm super excited by the men's 100 this year. It is crazy, John, that he gets beat by his brother, I think it was two weeks ago. might have been two weeks ago. Now comes out, takes down Trayvon Brumell. But I saw people, you know, posting on Let's Run. They're trying to do this analysis of like, oh, look how much faster he is at the 60. What does this correspond to? I mean, how far do you want to take that? He ran 6.55 last year. This is only 0.04 faster. But the bigger thing for me is he beat Trayvon Bramel. He's beating the best. There's a big stage. 
I think a lot of, you know, sprinting you these egos involved and all of that. It's great when, when they give a shit about an early, do we call this preseason? I don't know. What, what do you want to call it? Like none of these meets mean, any, mean anything. It's a gold level IWF world indoor meet. So it's about as big as it gets. Regular season meet, I guess. When somebody gives a shit about a regular season meet, maybe that's what we call this thing. So good for Noah. I mean, if Noah's running well in the 100, people are going to give a shit way more about him. They, they tried to pump up this thing. Sure, if he takes down Boltrek in the 200, people will really care. But the public at large, what do they care about? 100 meters. Yeah, the hundred men's the Olympic 100 meter final is one of the most watched sporting events on earth. And that's the only... That's really the only event you can say that about that's true in track and field. I mean, the Olympics in general, maybe, but that is the one, that is the most watched race of the Olympics. So, yeah, certainly a storyline to follow. I agree. Noel Lyles is my biggest winner. Woody Kincaid I have as a winner as well. I wasn't particularly shocked looking at, I expected him to beat this field, but it was good for him. One, he can bounce back a week after a strong performance and still get things done when he's the expected favorite and his closing speed was even better he closed in 25.79 to win in 740.71 so Woody keeps winning he says he's going to run Milrose again next week that's not going to be easy he's got Luis Grijalva he's got Cooper in there Jordy Beamish who won last year sorry this this yeah this weekend coming I mean the week after there'll be three weeks in a row of racing for him and while we're on this week Noah Lyles is at it again He's got Christian Coleman this week and at Milrose, so look out. If he takes them both down back-to-back... I mean, yeah, Christian Coleman's the world record holder in the 60 meters. He's also a former world indoor champion. He was the silver medalist last year at world indoors. Like, that's an even bigger 60 meter win. That's like... I mean, remember Marcel Jacobs did it last year, and then people were like, oh my God, Marcel Jacobs. He was the Olympic country champ. All right. Also in that 3K, I was pretty impressed by Christian Noble, actually. He was second in 742. Again, the field wasn't insanely good, but 742 closing in 27-0, second place, pretty solid run for him. Aren't you supposed to say Christian Noble, New Balance's male athlete? Yes, the. I mean, I guess if you count Drew Piazza, Drew Piazza did run this race as well, but he's one of two male American mid-D or distance runners that New Balance sponsored. Well, it's, it's pioneering for them to sponsor men, right? I mean, we should praise them. It, yeah, that is one of the weirdest ongoing storylines in track and field, that New Balance essentially didn't sponsor any American men or distance men for like five or six years, but... He's there now. Share the love, New Balance. Share the love. Crimea River. Two white guys complaining about themselves not being sponsored. No, no. I mean, I could run for Great Britain and they would sponsor me. They sponsor the world champion in the men's 1500. It's not like New Balance doesn't have men's athletes. But anyway, um, I also had Heather McLean. Speaking of New Balance Boston, if you listen to the podcast, we had a debate, Lucia Stafford against Heather McLean. You guys doubted Heather McLean, the Massachusetts native. It was a season opener. Well, her 1,500, sorry, her mile season opener. She ran the 800 last week and got beat. And she was up front most of the way in this one. She got passed on the final turn by Lucia Stafford, and then she came back on her. 
and ran her down. She runs 432, sorry, sorry, 423-42, a world-leading personal best to get the win here. And the cool thing about this was Heather is a Massachusetts native. She trains for New Balance Boston, so this is basically her home track. And six years ago to the day was when her father passed away. And his he was an iron worker in Boston, and his union actually helped build the track at New Balance. So very special connection. She had a lot of friends and family in the stands. It was one of the most exciting races of the day. And it shows that she just beat someone, Lucia Stafford. We know she's in very good shape right now. So this was a good win. Heather McLean picking off, picking up where she left off in 2022. Yeah, just a great track race, too. I mean, McLean's leading that thing. Stafford takes the lead on the final lap. I mean, indoors, first of all, the final lap's only 200 meters. I mean, obviously, this is obvious. But there's not a lot of room to pass. You come off that final turn, people, you know, do you go, do you go around the turn, do the extra distance, or you wait? After getting past, you know, the final 200, she still storms back. You don't see that a lot. That it showed good grit, good determination. We, I, I said sort of, I want to see what, how she starts off this season. It's her first full season sort of training without Ellie Perrier. I mean, I know she did it at the end of the season last year and, and ran tremendously in, in those final, what, two Diamond Leagues? But to see her start off like this, great for U.S. distance fans. Sinclair Johnson, you know, get the ball rolling. Are they squaring off this weekend? This is this is not our Melrose preview show, people. That'll be this Friday. You need to be a Supporters Club member to hear it. Let's run.com slash subscribe. I'll be going to the press conference on Thursday. Yeah, we'll break it down for you. Join the Supporters Club. Save money on shoes. Thank you, Melrose, for putting the press conference on Thursday. I think you want it two days out, John. If you want print media, you need at least two days out. Agree. It sometimes can be a little hassle with athlete schedules, but yes, that's the best way to get people talking about it. You build up anticipation because the stars will say something and you're not having workers having to turn around something. Like the NCAA cross-country press conference is like 15 hours before the race. You don't have any time to to utilize that. So yes. And for the record, uh, Heather McLean, I don't believe, is running Milrose this weekend. We do have Laura Muir against... Sinclair Johnson, though. So it still should be a pretty good matchup. All right, another winner I had here, Isaiah Jewett. He didn't win the race, but he showed me two things. One, he can run other than just leading things from the front. He was known as a front runner. That's what got him on the Olympic team in 2021. It's what won him his NCAA title in 2021. But this one, he came from behind. He got beat by Mariano Garcia. There's no shame in that, Mariano. Garcia is the reigning world indoor champion. He's the European champion in the 800 meters. He won the race in 145.26. Jewett was second, 145.75. Indoor PB and convincingly beat Bryce Hopper, who was only fourth in 146.58. It was a good sign for, for me, for Isaiah Jewett, because remember, he was really good. He ran 143 in 2021. Made the Olympics, maybe could have made the Olympic final if he doesn't get involved in that trip with Nigel Amos. So coming back in 2022, I'm thinking, all right, this guy, he's the next, you know, he's, he's a very big prospect. He didn't even make the USA final last year. So not his best work is in his first year as a pro. 
But this result, I was like, all right, Isaiah Jewett's back. He's on the right track again. I was, I think he's a winner for me, even though he didn't win. Yeah, big performance for him. I and mean, this is 0.07 slower than he ran outdoors last year. And I, I was wondering if Isaiah Jewett was going to be the guy, like sort of the feel-good story comes relatively out of nowhere to make the Olympic team. Nice guy, falls down to the Olympics, gets his spotlight there. But he's into anime, and then you never hear from him again, sort of deal. Like, okay, oh yeah, that was the guy. I remember, like, people were into him, and he had a couple, one or two good years, and that was it. Or not even one or two years, good years. One good year, and that was it. But no, he don't drop one forty three at his age. Nearly make the Olympic final, that sort of stuff, without having good engine, good top end. So. Glad he sort of found, it looks like he's going to find that rhythm or groove or training situation, whatever it is, to to rise to the level this year. I mean, all that matters is outdoors, but great step forward. All right, enough positive talk, guys. Let me be the Debbie Downer. And it came from the, one of my losers, biggest losers of the week, came from this race. And you know, that's why pe- people like me because I'm, I'm, I'm just, I state the facts. Whether it's good for me, whether it's good or not, I, I, some people are afraid to state the facts. A lot of people nowadays in this Judean age, in the day and age of when science is real, people are still afraid to state the facts. Because this guy's dad was on the podcast. He may have even been on the podcast. Bryce Hopple. Only fourth place in this 146.58. I don't want to go too overboard on the first indoor race of the season. Because in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't mean anything. But after this, I thought, I've seen this movie before. I don't need to see it for the third or fourth time. The movie of super talented, super good American middle distance runners. Their best year is their final year of college. We saw it with Andrew Weeding. He ran 330, never ran better. We saw it with Bryce, uh, excuse me, with Clayton Murphy, won an Olympic bronze medal. I think he's run faster. No, he's never run faster, right? Not close last time, but no. And I'm wondering if we've already seen the best of Bryce Halpel. When he got fourth in the Worlds, that amazing year, he just raced like 30 times. PR to Worlds, I think, at fourth place. I mean, the last four years since as a pro, first year he opens up at 145.7. 2021, he was ready to go. Olympic year, 144.37. Last year, it's 146.05. Now it's 146.58. So we're, we're opening up more than two seconds slower than we did two years ago. All right. Hold on here a second, Robert. Bryce Hopple, yeah, his, his single best performance, probably that fourth place finish at the World Championships in 2019. But 2020, this guy could have been contending for Olympic gold if there was if there was an Olympics. He he ran one forty three two three. He finished second behind Donovan Brazier in Monaco, but it was a COVID year, so he ran faster in his first year as a pro. Than he did as a collegiate. He just didn't have a championship to run in the Olympics. He was kind of banged up. But he still made the team. Okay, but yeah, twenty twenty one overall kind of a disappointing year. Then last year he was the U.S. indoor champion indoor and out. He medaled the world indoors. I wouldn't say he's fallen off a cliff. But yeah, he's he's yet to improve upon that 
fourth place finish at the World Championships. Didn't make it out of the first round in Eugene last year. He's got some things to redeem, but yeah, this wasn't a great opener, but I want to see more from Bryce Harper before I write off his 2023 season. So maybe I wasn't totally accurate about the 2020. I mean, he he was pretty damn good. I mean, he got hurt big time by the Olympic delay, I think. He could could be a medalist. But I'm afraid by the trend I'm seeing. It's a competitive event. And unless you're one of the very, very best in the world, your prime often doesn't last that long. But I'm not going to totally panic on Bryce Hopple. I still do. I mean, 143-2, medal at World Indoors. It's only World Indoors, but still... I don't know. I I I want to see more from him. Uh, I do have another loser. Two losers, in fact. They were both in the men's mile. I thought this was a big test because this wasn't... You don't have the very, very best guys in the world, but Neil Gawley, Sam Tanner, Andrew Koskarin, these are all established top-class world runners. You know, not They didn't make any world finals last year, but They've run low 330s. They can win races, these sort of races. It was going to be a big test for the Americans in this field because we had Sam Prakel, Johnny Gregoric, Hobbs Kessler, Josh Thompson, Cruz Culpepper. And Sam Prakel ran decently well. He was third in 353.5. Johnny Gregoric, not that bad. He was fifth, 353.99. Neil Gawley and Sam Tanner, great race to the finish line. I don't know how Neil Gawley caught him, but he did. 352.84. So Sam Tanner's 352.85. They're both running Milrose next week. But my two losers here, Hobbs Kessler, 10th in 405.01. And Josh Thompson didn't even make it to the finish line. He dropped out after three after 1,200 meters. This was a big test for these two guys, and they both flunked it. I was really into Hobbs Kessler. It's one of the people talking about what was I watching. I pulled over the car to watch his race. I had started a poll. You know, the best part about going to casinos when you're in the parking lot best part about a meet is anticipating what's going to happen. And I put it up on the homepage. How fast will Hobbs Kessler run in the mile on Saturday? And my options were sub 350. 4% said that. 350 to 353, 43%. 353 to 355, 37%. So 80% of Let's Run thought he would run under 355 in this mile. And the worst option that I had was over 355. Now, some people were like, wow, that's too fast, Rojo. Not when eight guys at the University of Washington are breaking four. I know this is a real race, and it's probably harder to do it than an actual pure time trial. But 405 was a disaster, but to me, not a big deal at all. Why? Because they said he was sick. When you're sick, you're not going to run well. And he guess what? He gets another shot this weekend. But I was so stunned by this at the time. I kept – because I didn't see the very start as I was pulling over the car, so I didn't get hit on 995. But then I'm like – staring at the screen on my phone like okay which one's the adidas singlet i thought he was like in fourth i didn't realize i guess he was way in the back but let's wait till this weekend i'll be the one that says calm down john well one of the other things is he ran 730 a week ago and it can be stringing together consistent performances after consistent performances he's still only 19 years old that can be a challenge and if you've you're a little sick and you've got a hard effort in your legs coming off of that, and then you're being expected to contend against another top field a week later, that can be a challenge. But obviously, I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat it. It was a poor run. And Josh Thompson, I don't know 
what was up with him, but you know, he was a world championship finalist last year. You would think he should be competitive and he just was not at all. Look, I'd almost rather have Hobbs completely bomb in a race than run like kind of be there and be like three fifty six. It's like okay, just bad bad day at the office, try again. Yeah. You know, we, we didn't speak to him afterwards. He came because it's hard to talk to everybody. And if you bomb out, you actually walk through the mix in really quick. I don't know if we we're talking to somebody else or what was going on. He didn't dodge the media for the record, but we just didn't get the chance to talk to him. Yeah. And he's like the one regret. I wish we could have talked to him more. Isaiah Jewett, we talked to him for like one minute. But yeah, you know, some, some, I think Mark Wetmore said he might have been a little sick this week. So he does completely terrible. Maybe he's not feeling it. Pulls the plug. Great. I mean, not great, but he's going to be, he's still 19 years old. He ran 839 last week. So. Yeah, this was not Hobbs Kessler at his best. And we know that. So it's bad race. Move on. But disappointing, obviously. And then the other one I had, Trayvon Bromel, he was pretty upset after losing to Noah Lyles. That's not a guy he expects to lose to over 60 meters. He knows that. If he's going to be the world champion in 100 meters, Noah Lyles, he's going to have to beat Noah Lyles and a whole bunch of other guys. So he knows he's... This was a reminder, like, hey, there are other top guys going there. They're all gunning for this title. But not a... You can't say he's a, a... I have to say he's a loser getting beat by Noah Lyles in an event he's expected to win. Hobbs is not running Wanamaker Mile, which makes sense. I don't think he's ready for a 348 race. I mean, the expectation is the American record goes down this weekend. I think it will go. Well, I think the winning time will be under the American record, I'll say that much. He's not running the Wanamaker Mile. Can I take back everything I just said? What is he running at Milrose? Is he running Milrose, Walter? I, I don't think so. I don't see him on the Wanamaker Mile list. I assume he's not running Milrose. But the way it works, he's a global athletics athlete, right, John? Makes more sense to go to their go to their meet. They probably take care of him if there is any sort of appearance fee, or I don't know, or just the agents like, hey, one of ours come run here, run this meet. Oh, you know, even if there's no money going in, oh, don't go run their meet, run our meet. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's. Yeah, I guess it'd be interesting to have him Milrose, but the Milrose mile is already good, and he's probably going to be a little over his head in it. So I'm not really going to rip him for not running that. Speaking of Milrose, uh, we'll have our full comprehensive preview on Friday, but I did want to discuss there was a notable withdrawal on Monday. A thing Mo, who was supposed to run the 600 against RJ Wilson, and I was all pumped about this. RJ Wilson's long. Armory Mill, Armory, Armory Wind Street, 10 years now, was going to be put on the line against the best 800 meter runner in the world. I, I talked to RJ after the race. I was like, oh man, are you excited to run? She's like, yeah, you got to go out there and do it. You know, she wasn't afraid. And I don't know, maybe she knew that a thing wasn't going to run. I don't know. I'm not sure. But a thing Mo posted my team and I have made the decision to no longer compete at the Milrose Games this weekend. Instead, we are focusing on gearing up to be at my optimum for the outdoor season especially the upcoming world championships. Wishing everyone participating the best of luck. And I'll just say, as a fan of the sport, I was kind of bummed. She didn't really give a reason here. She was announced a few, about a couple months ago, as running this meet. 
she hasn't raced since the World Championships outdoors. We don't know when her next race is going to be, but it sounds like it won't be until this outdoor season. It's just disappointing. I like seeing a thing Mo race. She was announced for this race. Now she's not running it. We don't really know why. It's kind of a bummer as a fan. I'll just say that. I do just try to play devil's advocate. I'm not really bummed because her racing AJ Wilson at 800 would be a destruction. She would destroy AJ. 600. That's what I meant. And to me, this is a step forward, John, because remember last year at the pre-classic, I was very critical of a thing, Mo, because I was out there for the meet. Where were you, John? I was at home. I just hadn't. It was go about to go to Eugene three more times. I guess I didn't make it for that fourth time. Anyway, she pulled out of the meet, and I was going ballistic that the meet organizers and or a thing felt like they owed nobody an explanation. I could not believe it. I'm like, what other sporting event can a marquee star just not show up or even a Broadway play? And there's no explanation, no statement, et cetera. And I think I wrote an article about it or whatever, complained about it. And eventually we did get a statement, but after the fact. So at least she's now doing it before the race. But it is getting pretty predictable. Like it's a problem in our sport when when we put a poll up on the website last week, some people might have thought this was in poor taste. Will Sydney McLaughlin run the New Balance and Drugger Prix? We thought because she didn't do the press conference that it was very likely she was just going to say, I'm not feeling good. I'm going to DNS. So I think Mo pulling out is not a surprise. We see this all the time with big stars. So it's just, it's a problem with our sport that, you know, I mean, I'm sure the NBA players would take off even more games if they didn't, if they could. But I don't know. Last year, she still won the world title after doing next to nothing indoors, dropping out of Milrose in the mile, dropping out of pre, she still beat everybody. So to me, it's not a big thing. It's just, it's interesting to me, like this adds more uncertainty to it, right? We'd like to see something of how she's doing with the new coach. She's left the coach that won Olympic and gold world gold for her for Bobby Kersey, who's never coached the 800. She's apparently, this is another development. A lot of people may not know about apparently who was her agent, well, she moved to L.A., and she had Wes Felix. L.A., Allison Felix, Bobby Kersey coaches Allison Felix. Bobby Kersey coaches, I think, Mo. It appears that Wes Felix has been fired as her agent, right? Because she has a new agency. She and Brandon Miller pumping up some, I don't know the name of it, but they've got NFL stars. They're with Alliance Sports, which is an NFL agency. I was very confused by this, and I was hoping to ask her about the move because as far as I know, they don't, I don't know. I'm not aware of them representing any other athletes. And obviously, a thing, Mo, it's pretty easy for her to get into any meet she wants. But why Why did she make that decision? I, there's a lot of things I'd like to know about her. It was also interesting. Sidney McLaughlin and Lavroni says they don't really train together that much, which is something I was, con I was interested about. But essentially, they said, you know, Sydney, she's more 400, 400 hurdles. A thing is more 800 right now. Maybe that changes. They could come together and work out more often. In the spring, certainly, if they're both preparing for the 400 USAs, it could happen. Um, so, yeah, it's a, she's in a very interesting situation at the moment. But, and it, to be fair, when she pulled out of pre-classic, it was because she had COVID and that had affected her training and lead up to the race. I, I think that's pretty understandable. But I think Mo is one of the biggest stars of the sport in the United States. I just think a lot of people would like to see her, you know, running Diamond Leagues and running 
Milrose, which is the biggest indoor meet we have. Uh, but she's not. She's focused on outdoors. We'll see how that. Are we sure she doesn't have two agents? Could she keep West Felix for track and this other agency for endorsements? Because I do think whoever's in charge of getting her other endorsements has not done a good job of it. No, I think she does have two agents. Because if you look at her Instagram profile, she also has Entertainers and Athletes Group, EAG Sports Management. So I'm not sure of her situation. I've reached out to Alliance, which is the NFL agency, which I think is her nominal track agency. They didn't respond to anything. So I don't know what her situation is. And endorsements, okay. I don't I don't know what her endorsement situations are, but I'm seeing on Instagram, she's at the 80 for Brady premiere. She was at the college football playoff. I mean, they're getting her out there. Uh, she's walking red carpets, that sort of thing. So if they want to build her brand, I do think they're taking steps towards doing that and being in LA helps with it. I've been thinking about this as we've been talking about it and I, I've totally changed my tune. Oh my God. I, rare in life. If I totally had a complete 180 in my head, originally when I saw John yesterday, you told me that she switched agencies and had this NFL agency. I'm like, wait a minute. This is starting to make me nervous. She had a little bit of a down year. I know she won worlds and everything was undefeated, but by her amazing standards, not quite as good running wise as the year before when no one even came close to her. And now she's gotten rid of her coach. She's moved from Texas to LA. She's moved. She's dumped her agent. But when I think about it from a business perspective, I actually think this is brilliant. This is a smart move because think about it. There aren't that many companies looking to sponsor track and field athletes. And those companies that are cool and, and want to do it and want to sponsor some powerful kick-ass Olympic champion, there aren't that many to choose from. You can take Othing Mo. You can take Allison Felix. She's retired, yeah, but she's still amazing and super popular. But Allison Felix is your agent's wife. Sister. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, would he be more likely to, to, to give her opportunities than you those opportunities subconsciously? Maybe, maybe he overcompensates. Do you know who West Felix also represents? Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni, who will be another person in that category competing for the same sort of sponsorship. So, if that's the reasoning behind it, I can understand. Total it actually makes total sense, right? You don't want to be the the possible third wheel in that one, because a thing most she could be the sensational star. So get in who's just going to fight for you in every single way possible. Well, here's the other thing: when you're a thing most level, I don't think you even really need a track agent as much as you need a marketing agent because what's one of the biggest things one of the biggest benefits of a track agent they negotiate your contracts and they negotiate your appearance fees or they get you into diamond leagues that sort of thing but two of america's most popular female distance runners in the last decade jenny simpson and emma coburn they operated for a long time without an agent emma coburn i don't think ever had an agent jenny simpson didn't have one for a long time in her prime it's because they didn't need to worry about, oh, can I get into this field? They just show up, they can get into any field they want. What If you're someone like a thing, Mo, what you want is someone who can help you transcend just track and field. Granted, Wes Felix, I mean, he helped Allison Felix do that, no doubt. Allison Felix is a crossover star, one of the few in track and field. But if you're worried, yeah, you might be competing for opportunities with other clients of his going 
a different direction could be possible. I, I'd be fascinated to learn about the whole decision-making process here for a thing. You're right, John, because the track and field agent, they might be able to get you a $5,000 higher appearance fee for this race or $10,000 here for that race than someone who doesn't really know track, but that doesn't matter anything because you're saving off the top end, like what is that, 15, 20% of the, off of your million-dollar contract. So they're, they're not making up what you're giving away. This could get interesting, though. They start competing on the track and off the track. They all clash in the 400. Well, that, I, that's what I want to see. I don't, I don't really care about this off the track competition. I want to see them racing a 400 at USA's this year. I think that would be fantastic. Guys, I want to go a slightly different direction with this. There's a four-page thread on I think Mo not running Melrose up right now. Some interesting takes. Do you guys think she's afraid to lose? This vote got 65 up votes, three down votes. It seems like she only sets herself for a race when she thinks she can win. She overestimated herself on the Melrose Mile last year and dropped out with 300 to go and didn't stay up for interviews or offer an explanation. Of course, she's obligated to run USA's and Worlds. You know, now she withdraws from the meet entirely. And people are now praising Sydney for showing up and losing. But do you think a thing, no, Mo? One is afraid to lose, and does she need to learn how to lose? Well, I think every athlete le- needs to learn how to lose. A thing didn't handle it very well at Milrose, but she was still 19 years old, first full year as a pro. Is she afraid to lose? I don't know. I don't really know well, her well enough to speculate, but did it cross my mind? Absolutely. Because this field in the 600 seemed to be the favorite. I think she would beat RJ Wilson. I think she would probably beat Natoya Ghoul and Shamir Little, but those are all top talents. You'd have to show up and be in pretty good shape, even for a thing, Mo, to make sure you beat them. Uh, and I also heard talk. There had been talk that she was supposed to be in the 500 against Femke Ball at the New, New Balance Indoor Grand Prix. And that ended up not coming together. She, they couldn't make it happen. I don't know what the reason was behind it, but now seeing that and dropping out of Milrose, did it cross my mind? Yes, but I don't know well enough to say that's the reason i don't think she's a so what she didn't handle it well but she still won world title last year so i I don't think she wants to go and and embarrass herself but i think this is more likely a case of her coach the new coach who's never really coached an elite 100 runner before he's always protective of sydney mclaughlin anyways last year barely had a race wanted to make sure everything was right i think he likes to show that he's in charge and have them sort of really knowing that when they show up, they're ready to go. And she only could lose here. She shows up in this race and bombs it or gets beat in a 600. This isn't a mile. This is a 600. This is right in her wheelhouse. Then people are going to be questioning, oh, was it a mistake? Do you want to go to Bobby? Blah, blah, blah. No, he wants her 100%. He wants to make no sure. Plus, there's some concern for his reputation. But another thing, Mo Talk. As we've been talking about Mark Wetmore, the agent who's in charge of the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix, I want to talk about Mark Wetmore, the coach, the Colorado, longtime University of Colorado coach. He and assistant coach and partner Heather Burroughs are currently subject to a, quote, independent comprehensive fact-finding inquiry, end quote, by the university. After a former walk-on complained the team culture was toxic and led to eating, eating disorders. So that got a lot of publicity. It was in the Washington Post in the spring, and then... The athletic director decided he was not going to fire them and et cetera. And the woman 
then escalated it to the president's level. Runner's World had a big article about it. And last week, um, I think the Colorado alums are, are worried, some of them, the, the prominent ones. A lot of the prominent ones are worried that he may lose his job because of this. So they got together and 44 of them signed a document and really almost all of them put statements out as well about like the positive impact they had that coach Wetmore and Burroughs made on them at the university. And um, some of them added in great detail. Renee Metivy, the 2005 NCAA indoor 3000 meter champ who transferred to Colorado from Georgia tech is like, look, I know what a toxic environment was like. It was not toxic at all. I thought I wasn't running well at first. And I thought I, I specifically said, oh, I need to lose a few pounds. And he's like, no, don't do that. That's not what I meant. So anyways, um, 12 of the 14 NSA champions that he's coached there signed the document. I thought it was significant. I didn't see any other, any other articles about this, so I put it up. Gotten a few emails, a few pushback from people saying, well, really one person saying, and I required registration to post in the thread. They're like, by requiring registration, you're hampering the anonymous voices that might not agree with these 44 voices, like 44 people speaking up over 20 year careers. Isn't that many? I agree. It's not that many, but it's still an anonymous message board. You can create a fake. You can, you can sign up anonymously. Anyways, I put this up. I thought it was fine. I felt like these allegations got a lot of publicity when they were made against him. Shouldn't he get equal publicity when people are defending him? But I got an interesting email from someone who disagreed that I was biased. And I don't know. What do you guys think? Of course you should write something about it. I mean, these are not just, you say 44 isn't that many over the course of 20 years. Well, I guess if you're counting literally every Colorado person, but almost all of the Colorado athletes who people would recognize, or maybe not all of us, a significant majority of the most prominent Colorado athletes during the Wetmore era have put their names to this document to defend him. These are people whose opinions carry a lot of weight in the running world. Jenny Simpson... Emma Coburn, widely respective, sorry, widely respected, uh, Danny Jones, female athletes, Cara Goucher. The fact that they're backing him up, him and Heather Burroughs on this, is important to me. And Colorado's doing an investigation. Hopefully they're talking to a lot of people and getting a sense of this. I don't think, this doesn't mean he has absolute clemency. Other athletes have other experience, have had other experiences, including Katie and Teal, who is the person who spoke out about this initially and who has initiated this investigation. But I think it's important that, like, at the very least, I think you can say this suggests this is not the tip. The typical experience is not one of eating disorders or toxic environment. There are many athletes who say that this experience isn't, is one of the best experiences of their lives, that they've enjoyed their time under Wetmore, that they believe he does it the right, right way. So, I think that's certainly an important perspective to have, and I would hope that the people investigating this at the University of Colorado have seen this document and that they reach out to some of the people who have put their names to it to help gain a full picture of what's going on in Boulder. A couple points. One, the athletes who are most successful, they're probably less likely, obviously, to have a less for, uh, have a bad situation, be in a toxic environment. But I also related to that, I would argue that 
Mark Wetmore, if he had a truly toxic environment, I, mean, I don't know what's going on and what the investigation be done. I don't think he'd be as successful as he would have been. Not that athletes haven't had problems that everything's the thing, but like you can't run well long term if you if you're like super unhealthy. So but, um, you could say, okay, maybe Goucher, the, these are the ones that work for them. It's great, whatever, whatever. But I don't know, eating it, it eating weight. These are all things that are part of our sport. I mean, that's where I ate whatever the hell I want. I just don't have a problem taking off weight. But I don't know. It's, it's it, you know, talking to people about it. I guess you could say, oh, Bobby Knight was successful and look what he did to people. So who knows? But these issues go on at every school. And if we can get a better way for all coaches to talk to their athletes about this and for athletes to be prepped. Hey, your coach is going to talk to you about this. Be prepared to handle it. He wants to do it in the best way possible. I think that's where we get. I mean, I've heard some crazy stories. I think Robert was telling me some stories, some prominent coach. Supposedly he had ice cream par- ice cream parties. Okay. I was about to bring that up. A few things. Walden said that the best athletes like aren't going to be part of the talkers culture. Yes, but the best athletes are under, would be under the most pressure to lose weight. Or maybe they could naturally go to losing weight. But the, the emailer said to me, I knew someone on the team, they lost conference. And Wetmore told them it was because the girls were overweight and they needed to do a Bob Pod Dexy scan once a week go moving forward. Now, this was over 15 years ago. But my thought is, okay, what if that's true? I mean, wrestling coaches tell people to lose weight. Football coaches tell people to gain weight. I wouldn't do that now. And it sounds like they're optional now. But... I don't think it should be a numbers game. You know, 44 people this, 15 people negative. Look, we can't deny Katie's, she had a bad experience. She feels very strongly about it. Feels like he should not be coaching. That's real. But at the same time, if one person doesn't have a good experience, I don't think you should lose your job. Like, and Weldon was talking about this person that emailed me. They were saying, and, and I'll mention the name of the school, NC State, which is now totally praised. Well, boy, Hannah's doing an amazing job. She doesn't do the pod pod. She doesn't do the deck scans. She's treating weight how I would want to treat. Her own daughter thrived in the program. If I had a daughter, I would love to send them and have a run for NC State. But this emailer was like, look, they used to have a big eating disorder problem. It was more implicit. It sounds like, but the email to me is the perfect, almost defense of Wetmore. NC State was trying to do the right things. They were regularly having ice cream parties. Yet this person says the girls would just sit there with the ice cream and not, not take a lick. So you can encourage people to do the right things with food and tell them it's okay to have dessert, and they still might have an eating disorder. So thankfully she wasn't fired for that. Robert, this is, it is slightly different, actually, though, because here they're alleging that Wetmore wasn't doing the right thing. So in, in fairness, with Wetmore's success, these people defending him, unless they find something very egregious in a pattern, I, I hope he stays as the Colorado coach. Um, the, the, way, these these are tough issues to talk about. It, and I think also we're evolving. You know, is he going to get it right every single time? No. So personally, I'm going to really want give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, but w- let's see what this re- report puts out there. I, I think for Wetmore's sake, because I guess his job must be in jeopardy. If the athletes, I don't think, make this step unless they're worried. 
it's great that these prominent alums are like, look, he he, he not only is a great coach, but he he was great to me as a human being. I value my time with him. Like, what what's see another side to the story? Yeah, I think the evolution thing's important because if you read Running with the Buffaloes, there's one of the days that they describe they're talking about how skinny Adam Gouch needs to be and that what more so he couldn't he wouldn't be good if he couldn't unless he couldn't see his ribs. And I think one of the descriptions in there was that you were supposed to look like a skeleton with a condom pulled over you. I mean, that sort of st- discussion of weight, I don't think would fly, but that was 1998. That was 25 years ago. So I think many programs are still learning how to handle this. And hopefully what results is, hey, here are a couple areas that may have been problems. This is stuff you need to be cognizant of moving forward. And hopefully this means this is an improvement for the Colorado program as a whole once this investigation is concluded. All right, guys, let's talk London Marathon. We're still three months away, but they announced their field for the 2023 race. Three months? It's in May this year? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Robert. First mistake I've ever made on the podcast. Two months away. I'm thinking we're still in January for some reason. April 23rd is the race. It's the same week as Boston. We're finally back in the spring. So now we've got Boston on Monday, one of the boss, most anticipated Boston marathons ever with Elliot Kipchoge. And then on Sunday, we've got London, which the field is just, the women's field, they're calling it the greatest field ever. Hugh Bracia, the London Marathon race director, has said, it is, quote, the greatest ever field assembled for the elite women's race. This is quite simply the greatest women's field ever assembled for a marathon, arguably the greatest field ever assembled for a women's distance race. It's going to be a race the whole world will be anticipating, and I can't wait to see what happens. And it is pretty awesome. If you look at personal best, there are five women sub 218, 10 sub 219, 11 sub 220. You've got Perez Jepchirchir, the Olympic champion, Bridget Kozgai, the world record holder, Yalamzov Yahalor, the reigning champion, Tiga Sasefa, who ran 214, oh, sorry, 215 in Berlin last fall, Genzebe Dababa, you've got Safan Hassan's debut, and you've got Emily Sisson against Kira D'Amato in the women's, you know, for the Americans. So, it is a sensational, sensational field. We'll get to the men in a minute, where we've got Kelvin Kiptum, Mo Farah, Kenny Spikale. But I want to start on this women's race. Do you guys buy this? Is this the greatest women's marathon field in history? In terms of times, an overall number of athletes, I think the answer has to be yes. 10 sub 219s, the most ever, 7 for Boston this year, 11 sub 220s. But it's amazing. I can't wait. But I, I don't know if I can get that over the top about it for one key reason. We kind of live in a winner-take-all society. And particularly in celebrity culture, it's all about the biggest celebrity. The only problem with this field is it's missing the number one, our number one ranked marathon in the world from last year. Ruth Chepengedich, who, in case you forgot, Picked up 250000 by winning Nagoya in 217, and then ran to me the craziest marathon of women's marathoning history. 214.18 after going out in, what, 65 minutes in Chicago? I mean, 
if they had her and everyone else, there's just no doubt. But instead, she's going to go back to Nagoya, pick up the easy money. Well, Robert, this isn't the grand slams of tennis. You have Boston going on in the spring. You have Nagoya going on in the spring. One race cannot get all of the athletes. So that's like an unreasonable expectation to expect one marathon to exclude everyone else, especially since I'm reading here an article on a website called letsrun.com from January 3rd, 2023, written by Robert Johnson, actually. Wow, where? I actually would assume this actually by Jonathan Galt, saying, historically great 2023 Boston Marathon Women's Field announced. So we praised Boston. This one shows how crazy women's marathoning has gotten. We praised Boston. And then this London field comes out, and we're like, holy crap, because you've got, what, Bridget Koskai, Parisha Churchier, Y squared. I want names, not just times. And then the debut of Safan Hassan. Those are four superstars of the sport going head-to-head. It's pretty good. And then... Um, well, then we have to contextualize this. Boston's field is better than usual, but the defending champion, Perez Jipchichia, she's running London instead. And you've got to remember, there are going to be more historically fast fields because times are just so much faster. We had the craziest year ever in the history of the women's marathon last year. So now, instead of there being five sub-218 women, period, you get five per race sometimes in the majors. Uh, the other thing I would say is, Robert, you're saying no field can get everyone. Actually, I feel like for a few years in the 2010s, London actually did get everyone. Like they would have like the eight people you would want to see running in a marathon. That's not the case this spring. But I'm not going to say, oh, they got everyone except for Ruth Chepengedich. So I'm going to be bummed out about it. First of all, Ruth Chepengedich, okay, we ranked her number one, but that's a subjective ranking. The fact is, last year, Pretty much all of the top women, they were running their races in isolation. You would see Tigger Sasefa go 215 in Berlin. Then you would get Amani Bariso go 214 in Valencia. You would have Ruth Chepengedich run 214 in Chicago. Y Squared would run Hamburg and London. They're all running different races. Perez Jipchichu was in Boston. She actually did race uh, Jocelyn Jepkosguy. That was a showdown we wanted to see. But a lot of these top athletes were running separate races now we've got not all of them but many of them in london so i'm gonna praise them more than say focus on who's not there i wasn't trying to say wasn't the most amazing field ever i just said it might you might you might ding it this way and if you look at the men's field which is pretty remarkable as well i mean they always have a stacked field I mean, you wrote it there. You said, is Boston even better? There's nothing better than the women's London's field. There may be no one better than this this women's London field, but I'm just saying it's hard to like, when you're missing the very best. Boston has the very best, man. They have L.A. Kipchoge. They have our top two ranked marathoners on the men's side. And who's the other guy, John? Help me out here. Evans Chibet. But London's got Amos Caprudo. Tamara Tola, Mosinai Garamu, Kelvin Kipton, who just ran 201. So that's four of the top seven guys in the world from last year. It's going to be a great race. London always is amazing. I just was trying to point out an interesting thing that the women's field is missing 
one person who's pretty damn good. And there's a couple other going to Boston. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait for it. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think the, the one thing I guess I would say is I'm not certain who the number one marathoner on the women's side is right now because these women were all running different races. I think Chep and Gedich did have the best year and that race in Chicago, particularly with the positive split, she probably was the fittest last year, but we haven't seen a healthy Bridget Cosguy. You know, she ran 216.0 in Tokyo. And if she's fully healthy in her peak, she could be the best. Perez Jepchirchir hasn't lost for like four years. So that's what I'm saying. Jepchirch, I mean, Chevin Gedich was number one based on her accomplishments last year, but she only ran two races. And if she was in London, then I think we could say the win- winner of that race really is the number one marathoner in the world. I wonder if they're going to try to set up set it up so that they break the world record. Because when I look at it objectively, I think that the world record should be faster than it is. 214.04 or 01, John? 04. Paul Radcliffe ran 215.25 without super shoes. I think the shoes are worth more than a minute and 20 seconds. So you either think Paul Radcliffe was on drugs or these women aren't as good as Paul Radcliffe. I think that there's enough women as good that it should be faster. I think we saw that in Chicago last year with the crazy pacing and still running 214 out that. But I started thinking about world records and I was like, how often does the world record get broken in the spring? Maybe it's easier to train in the summer. World records are, are they broken more often in the fall? Just a little stat here. I know I'm talking about women's world record. For the men, it's true. The last eight world records have all been set in the fall and in Berlin. Turgat, Gebeselesi, Gebeselesi, Mikhail, Kipsing, Kimeto, Kipchoge, Kipchoge. All the way back to 2003. The last time someone set a men's world record, not in the fall, not in Berlin, was Kali Kanuchi as an American, April 14, 2002. But for the women, London gets such good people that they've got three of the last four world records. Paul Radcliffe, 215. 25. Oh, they're counting. A, I'm on Wikipedia. Mixed race, 217 for Paul Radcliffe. Women only married. Katani, 217. Bridget Kosko, Chicago. All right. Let's talk Hassan. I thought it was interesting what she said in the media call is that she's still focused on the track. I asked her, you know, why did you decide to move to the marathon? She made it very clear to correct me. I'm not moving to the marathon. I'm running this marathon, but I'm still focused on the track. She's saying she feels more ready than ever, just like before the Olympics. So she's going to be running the World Championships in Budapest this summer, but she's doing the marathon first. And she said she's not 100% doing marathon training. She's still balancing some track stuff. And this was her quote. I always say to my manager, I want to do marathon without really preparing for marathon. I totally have not considered moving to the marathon exclusively. So from the way she's talking about this, I'm just not expecting that much from her. I would think maybe, I mean, she's run 65, 15 and a half. So obviously she has some talent along the distance, but she's also run 156 for 800. And I just, I can't believe that someone who's run 156 for 800 and 351 for 1500 on the women's side would also be able to run, you know, to get into 214 marathon shape, which is what it would take 
to win this race. The way I kind of see it going is I could see her going out with Emily Sisson and Kira DeMondo and running in that second group and or maybe even slower than that. What do you guys think? I hope not. John, I assume she got paid a pretty penny to show up at this thing. She better not be going out with the second group. Having said that, I expect nothing from her in this race after saying that. You can't half-ass the marathon. So maybe unless Super Shoes have totally changed the game, which I don't think they ha- have in that aspect. So she's not fully training for the marathon. I hope she gives it a go, tries to stay up there as long as she can, and then she will blow up with a miserable back half and dropout. That's my expectation right there. But I don't want her going out with some second group. No, 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 no. I'm paying to see you on TV. You're one of the world's best distance runners. This is a race. Try to win it. I'm with Weldon on that. I want her in the lead pack. Now, if they go 65, that's ridiculous. But as long as it's 67 or higher, she needs to be in it. That's what we're paying you for. Because when you interviewed me and said, oh, she might not go to the lead pack, I'm like, well, then why is she running it? Other than just to pick up a paycheck. But big picture, A, I think she's very competitive. I think she will go in the lead pack. B, I think this is a great sign for the summer. She tried, she, she got motivated last year at the last minute and just wasn't enough. But there was times in Eugene, John, when I thought, oh my God, she's going to win this thing. Oh my God, she's not even in shape. She's going to win a world title. So we always thought back when we were running marathon training, all the mileage, the base makes it strong and it can actually benefit your track training. Benefited Weldon a great deal. He did not run a good marathon, but he ran some good, damn, damn good track races. So she's motivated. She's training. This is going to keep her into something. Watch out on the track. I would really like to see. I agree. First sub 29 by a woman. And sub, or sub 14. I think it'll be great. I, I'm excited to see that. I That was my big takeaway too, Rob. I'm like, all right, she's coming back. I mean, her against... Good day in the 10K in Budapest. That would be fantastic. And then Hargens, maybe Nian Saba. If Nian Saba is still around, we you know we haven't really seen those two battle at their absolute peak. I suppose they ran the 10,000 in Tokyo and Hassan beat her, but Nian Saba hadn't really taken off totally on the track. But yes, I am excited to see Hassan return to the track this summer. I'm curious, when you spoke to her on the Zoom call, where was she? Where does she train now? Does Tim Roberry like fly over the world to train with her or does he stay remote? I, I would love to know how that works. And because, you know, you get you and Weldon always making fun of me. Who have you ever coached? A bunch of fast college guys. I'm just like the general manager. John Kelly would coach him, but who had Tim Roberry ever coached other than the great? Now he's coached one athlete that happens to be like the greatest women's runner ever. But where was she then? I don't know where she was. I didn't ask her. Um, it looked like a hotel room, but. I'm not sure, Robert. And as far as I know, I don't know of any other athletes Tim Robry coaches. He maybe he does. Um but as far as I know, he's her priority and he goes where she goes. Guys, yeah, should we get the let's run.com classic? Start planning it. We've got Ben Rosario coming up. He's got some ideas to promote the sport. But I guess he did he did coach Kajelcha. I'm not sure if he still coaches Kajelcha, but I know for a couple of years after NOP disbanded, he did that. All right, what are these Americans? Wait, no, I'm asking, should we get the Let's Run Classic 
promotion going. We we get it at BU in the summer. Is the building air conditioned? And we'll get a lot of stop points for promoting women's distance running. We, we don't have a very diverse staff, but if we set, if we create the first sub-14 women's 5,000 meters indoors at BU, pack the place, we will forever be more woke than the wokest of the woke. I guess. We got to get them to her to agree to it. All right. I mean, you have Yos Herman's number. You can call him up. You want to make an offer, Robert? Yeah, we haven't talked about the other thing about London that's cool. We've got Emily Sisson, Cura D'Amato, together in a super fast race. Fast American record holder, current American record holder. When I saw Kira at the USA Cross Country Championships, she was like, "Hey, I'm not. I haven't given up on getting that record back." Well, she'll have a shot. I mean, assuming the weather's all right, which it's London, so you're never totally sure. But I don't think they'll be going out with the leaders. But I'm interested to see what pace do they target, and also. I could see a scenario similar to what we had with Sarah Hall in, tw- in, two- in 2020 when she got second. If the leaders go out in 66.30 or something, or 67 minutes, and it's a warmer day, they could totally crater, and I could see Emily Sisson or Kira D'Amato just running them down and picking up the straps and finishing on the podium. So I'm curious because I don't think there's real. Do you think there's any other way one of them finishes in the podium at London? I don't because th- I don't think going out with the leaders will be wise. I don't think that's how they run their best race. No, these two do not finish on the podium. Either one of them, if they go out with the leaders, their best way is to hang back and go for it. John, the pace they're targeting for sure is the American record. I don't expect Kier Tomato to end this race with the American record. I still expect some way or the other that Emily Sisson will have it, but there's a reason we run the race. So I'm glad to see them going head to head. And I'm glad Kira saying, all right, hey, you know, 219 is not all I got. Emily, you got the record. I'm going to go back and try to get it. So good for her. Can we pay London to get a separate camera on them as Americans? Because I don't know how much they're going to be covering the chase pack of people who are in, you know, eighth or nine. We need a cam on them that Americans can pay to have access to. Kira versus Sisson. All right. Men's race. I think Boston's better looking at the fields compared. I, I don't, sorry, I don't mean to slam London or anything because this is still a good field. We've got. The first time ever they're playing it up. It's the first time ever two two oh one marathons have squared off. Kelvin Kipton against Kennedy's Bekele. But we all know Bekele's kind of past it at this point. I'd love for him to prove me wrong, but he's 40 years old and you know, we've he's seen better days. So, four sub two oh three uh, runners, that's the first most ever. Seven sub two oh four, ten sub two oh five. These are all records for depth, but the names you know, there's no Kipchoge. Bekele is kind of hostile. Amos Kipruto, the defending champ, he's coming back. Tamarat Tolo, the world champion. Mosnet Garamu, he's run 202. Kelvin Kiptum, who ran 201 in Valencia. It's good. It's good. I guess I'm just, it's, you know, I, the women's field is so star studded with all these established quantities. 
and the men. You've got a couple people who are just emerging on the scene, a couple who are coming, trying to come back onto the scene. Mosinek Garamu was a hot thing a couple of years ago. He had a good year last year. Kiptum has just emerged from nowhere and run 201 in his debut. The storylines aren't quite as numerous, but I do think this should be a quality race. Oh, and Mo Farah. We forgot to mention him, of course. He hasn't run a marathon in four years. He turns 40 next month. He said 2023 will probably be his last season. He's trying to go for one last hurrah. This is unusual, John, because Boston is better than London. Usually London is stronger both fields, men's and women's, I would say, than Boston. But when you have the big na- biggest name in the sport, Elliot Kipchoge, you have the New York and Boston champ, Evans Chabet, and then Vincent Capruto, who was our number five and won Chicago last year. That's three of the top five with the big star name. That's enough. I'm sorry. I don't care what you filled in, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. London may be a better race than Boston, but no. Like... I haven't been this excited about a Boston Marathon in a long, 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 long time. Men's Boston Marathon, at least. So, Well, this is the most I've ever been excited for a Boston Marathon on the men's side. Elliot Kipchoge is running Boston. He's running against two studs. Period, yeah. It's pretty simple. But I am excited for Kelp Kipton in London. I mean, on, on, on him and... Background, I was just looking it up because I was like, wait a minute, let me remind myself. I'm getting skeptical about some of these times. You know, we've got like originally when Ruth Chepengedich wasn't in the London field, and I Googled John, I couldn't find it. You found it that she was going in Nagoya. I was like, uh oh, she's not running any spring marathon. Let's hope she's pregnant then because I was fearing the doping positive. With Kiptim, I was reminding myself, wait, where did he come from? But he's super young, just turned 23. He had run a 58-42 half. I mean, he ran 59-53 back in 2019 at the age of 19. So maybe he's the next Kipchoge. Real quickly, guys, one name we've not mentioned, Molly Seidel. She raced this past weekend at the Mesa Half Marathon where – Chad Hall in the marathon, the brother of Ryan, former Foot Locker champion. Well, Chad's the former Foot Locker champion. Ran 2.12 in his marathon debut. But this that course is way downhill. Molly Seidel was beaten by over a minute by Geraldine Poe. Poe ran 70.37. Molly 71.43. She's racing. It's Nagoya, right? Yep, Nagoya next month. I guess we don't know if this was a training run, just trying to get some pace work in. But are you guys familiar with Geraldine Poe? I believe she ran at Michigan State, but that's really all I can tell you about her. Wow, John. That was a good... I mean, you go to the NCAA cross-country championships every year, you pick up a few names, but... I, I think she's run 31.59. She's married to Justin Kiprotich. Did we mention him like last podcast or something? We did. We wanted to know what happened to him. He was a two-time NCAA runner-up in the 1500. Do you guys know he's American? Yes. She's married to Justin Kipritich? Oh, yes. my God. Someone, I'll, I'll get him a contract. He can be my first athlete. Talent doesn't go away. That guy was beaten 
Who did he beat? Why did he come up in last week's podcast? Because I was looking, I'm like, wait, this guy didn't even win NCAs. Because he should have beaten. He got nipped by Nagus at the line. And he beat Craig Engels when in Engels' final year at Ole Miss. But got third, you mean? But he got second behind Josh Kerr. Wow. That guy needs to, and he's American? The next great American hope right here, Justin Kubertich. Sorry, Hubs Kessler. Sorry, Cole Hawker. Sorry, Cooper Tier. Let's get him out there. So what place did this young lady get at NCAA cross country? Well, I guess it doesn't matter. Well, my thoughts on Seidel is 71 minutes for her is not good, but for all we know, she was running as a t- training run, although I kind of doubt it because last year she ran the same race in 70.06. But what? Maybe she's just working on pace for Nagoya. I just think it is a step forward, though, from where she was in the fall. 76-minute half marathon on November 13th. So... Yeah, she's coming off a trying year, and I wasn't. It's an improvement on Boston, right? That was awful conditions, and she'd be barely even training. I'm not going to freak out about this result. Uh, it doesn't. My guess is it's more that she's still. She's been logging miles and training, but she's coming off a poor year in 2022 and still trying to get back to her top level. I imagine she'll be closer to it in Nagoya, but she's not she knows that the 2024 Olympic trials and 2024 Olympics, those are the ones she really needs to be back ready for. So yeah, it's I don't have much to say about it. It's a step forward from the full. That's the big I agree with Robert. Yeah, I didn't realize she ran 76. Big step forward then. And it's crazy that we're under one year from the Olympic marathon trials. COVID really wrecked everything, man. Time stood still. Even if Molly's title is not like Olympic bronze medal shape, 71 minutes, I know it's downhill, but she's probably in something close to 225 marathon shape. Even, heck, there's only five women that broke 225 in America last year. Well, this is Taylor Stop Show, so maybe it's missing some 80 courses. Only eight broke 227. So, just show a little bit. Just get in 225, 227 shape this spring. Get in better shape next year. Make the team again. Yeah. All right, guys. Speaking of the Olympic marathon trials, we've got NAZ Elite Executive Director Ben Rosario coming up as our guest. We talk a little bit about the trials next year in Orlando, but we are bringing him on for his gambling prowess. So... Stay tuned, and he will be joining us momentarily. All right, we are very happy now to be joined by Ben Rosario, the executive director of Hoka One One Northern Arizona Elite. If you guys remember, this time last year, we had Ben on the pod as part of our Let's Run Pro Coaches Tour, and he gave us the best gambling advice we've ever received. We asked him for a Super Bowl pick, And he said he thought the Rams would win by a field goal, but suggested we bet Bengals plus four. Final score, Rams 23, Bengals 20. Made you a lot of money if you bet on that. And then for free, Ben threw out a golf pick. Scotty Scheffler, 24 to one to win the Waste Management Phoenix Open. Guess what? That paid off too. So Ben made a decent amount of money. Hopefully our listeners made some money last year. We had to have him back on this week because it's an especially huge weekend for Ben. It's the Waste Management Phoenix Open 
and Super Bowl 57, and they're both happening just two hours south of Flagstaff in Phoenix. This may be the biggest weekend in the history of the of Arizona sports. So first question, Ben, are you going to either of these events this weekend? I will be going to the Waste Management Phoenix Open. This will be my third time. It's uh, it's the best sporting event in the, in the country annually, in my opinion. Uh, of course, I can't count running events because I'm in that industry, but it's amazing. 250,000 people a day. It's, it's crazy awesome. So yeah, I'll be there with my uncle and my brother. Where do you watch from? Do you go in the hole where they have the bleachers surrounding the green like no, stadium? I, or where do you watch well, from? That. You got to get there at six in the morning to do that and, and drink all day. I, I'm more, uh, we mosey in about eight, 8 a.m., 9 a.m. and uh, kind of pick who we want to watch and follow them. And then if there's a hole that we want to sit at for a while, we'll just watch some people come through. And, and then on Sunday, we'll watch the leaders. We'll just follow the, I mean, we, I like the golf. So we'll, we'll follow the lead group around on, on Sunday all the way around, all 18. Uh, that's kind of our plan. All right, so we got to get the prediction. Who's going to be in that lead group? Who do you like at the Waste Management Open from a gambling perspective? Yeah, well, it's much harder this year. I'm giving myself an out here. It's much harder this year because all the top players are playing. I think 23 of the top 24 players in the world are playing. So, uh, looking for some value for you guys. I mean, I'm not going to pick Rom or Rory because they're under 10 to 1. Um, I'll give you two picks. I like Colin Morikawa at 18 to 1. That's decent value. Um, he's been second and third in the only two tournaments he's played this year, and his irons are unbelievable, which I think will be valuable on this course. Um, and I think he'll step up. I think he'll like the atmosphere, the primetime nature of it all. And then... I'll go way down the board. Now, this is crazy. Now, this is 70 to 1. Actually, I got him at 80 to 1, but he's down to 70 to 1. Keegan Bradley. Uh, Keegan makes the cut here every year. He likes the tournament, but he hasn't really been playing all that well until very recently. So I'm thinking if he was making the cut before when he was playing poorly, maybe now that he's kind of caught fire, maybe he can win this thing. And he's a big sports guy, so I think he'll like the atmosphere as well. So Morikawa, 18 to 1. Keegan, 70 to 1. Those are my two picks. Well, do you know? All right, this is a question for you. I know a little bit about Keegan Bradley because he won the PGA in 2011 when I was interning at the Little Sun. We covered a little bit. Do you know what high school Keegan Bradley went to and how it's it's significant in the running world? It has a tie to the running world. Oh my God! Did he go to the same one as Jonathan Riley? No, he didn't. That's Brookline okay. High. I was just guessing. Uh, I know. I know he's a Boston guy. Actually, he's from Vermont, right? But he likes all the Boston sports teams. See, he's from Vermont originally, but he went to Hopkinton High School. Oh, Hopkinton High. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, so start line of the Boston Marathon, obviously, for our running fans. All right, Keegan Bradley and Colin Marikawa. Robert, you look like you want to say something here. I was just curious. You said it's the best sporting event in the country. Like, what can, what, what can running learn from this? Like, what makes it so much fun? Oh, well, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, they, they, um, I think they look at it from two angles. Of course, they've got the, the golf angle and they've got everybody making sure that the golfers have what they need and that the course is beautiful and that it's playable and that the players are going to like it and all that good stuff. But then they've got a giant team making sure that it's a big party and a big festival. And those aren't the same people necessarily. you know. And, and I think in, in our sport, we, we often we're so concerned with who gets into what heat and um, making sure that the... Uh, you know, that the rules are being followed and all these things. And we just just completely forget that sports are entertainment. They're supposed to be entertainment anyway. And 
um, I think that's the biggest difference. All right. Moving on to Super Bowl 57 on Sunday in Glendale. It's Eagles versus Chiefs. The current line is Eagles minus 1.5. Who do you like? And do you have any do you have any props or anything? I'm not sure if you've bet on any of those either. Yeah, well, I'll um, I'll start with a prop. So if you now you know this is all just for fun, of course. You know this is just for fun. Or if you're over 21 and you live in the right state, uh, you know maybe you can bet. But um, my favorite prop is heads or tails, and I like <laughs> um, I like heads. I like to say it's usually heads. Um, I have when I used to watch the Rams, you know, back in the day when I lived in St. Louis and they were still there. The, the radio announcer team was Steve Savard, this former player, TV guy. He was a good play-by-play guy. And then his, his right-hand man, his color guy, this guy named Jim Hannafin, old guy, used to be an offensive line coach. And there was this crazy game. It went into overtime. And there's this funny call that they replay in St. Louis a lot. Um, it goes into overtime, and they do the coin toss, you know, to see who's going to get the ball. And it's tails. And you hear Hannafin in the background go, oh, God. And Steve Savard's like, What's wrong, Jim? He goes, oh, it's usually heads. <laughs> <laughs> so forever now, if it's a heads or tails situation, I go heads. So that's my prop bet, heads. And then in the game, I will say, you know, last year when I did this, the reason I picked Bengals plus four is because the games had been so close, you know, in the divisional round and in the, um, in the AFC, uh, NFC championship games. And this time, I mean, the Eagles have been blowing people out. So, I don't know. A lot of people think the AFC is better than the NFC, and that's why. But I think the NFL has a lot of parity. And so, and I don't really know if Mahomes is okay yet. They say he's okay. But I'll take the Eagles minus one and a half for no huge. I don't really follow football like I follow golf. So, I'll just take Eagles minus one and a half. I like that. I think I was leaning towards that. So and they did just legalize sports gambling in Massachusetts. I have to drive over to the Encore to place my bets, but now I have some. I don't think I can follow your advice on the heads or tails, though. Even though Patriots legend Matthew Slater he called heads in Super Bowl Fifty One for overtime. That's one of the reasons they won the game. Uh, same in AFC Championship that year. Two years later, went to overtime. He called heads. Heads calling heads in the overtime coin toss. Huge part of the Patriots dynasty. But that's just the heads or tails prop is just proof the casinos are stealing from you. They set the line at like minus one oh four. They literally it is literally a coin toss and they're not giving you even odds on it. That's just casinos want to make money. That's right. That's right. It's not a good thing. I don't I don't endorse gambling. I just enjoy it. Yeah. Uh all right. Let's let's ask a few running questions here. I'll ask you the question that everyone asked me when I quote unquote retired from coaching ten years ago. People are like do you miss it? What What do you do all day, et cetera? So you used to coach the Hogan NAC Elite team. Now you're the executive director. So how is that going? How much different is your day? And, and, and how do you spend it now? Are you like the general manager? Like, do you, do you procure the talent? Well, I do have a lot to do with the recruiting for sure. I work closely with the global sports marketing director for Hoka in terms of identifying the athletes that we want to bring on. And then, of course, I work with Alan on that as well. So it's definitely a joint uh, effort. Uh, as, as far as me and, and missing it, uh, I miss it sometimes, but the, the best part is watching the races anyway, and I still love watching the races. I'm as fired up about that as I ever was. So 
that's not really any different. Uh, my Sundays are a lot easier because Sundays I used to really spend a lot of time working on training because that's the only time I could have to myself with nobody emailing me or calling me. And so um, Sundays are a little easier. Um, you know, I get to work quicker. I get to my computer quicker because I used to have to go to practice every morning and now I don't. So I've been able to make inroads, I think, on some projects that I had been wanting to move forward with for a long time. Like, for example, I'm sitting in a, a, a new office. We have a we have a 2,600 square foot space now that that is basically going to be our performance center. So we've been working on it over the last couple of months. We've got the flooring laid down in the offices. We've got the track. We've got track surface throughout the space. So um, we'll have a weight room in the back. We have a hallway where we can do hurdle work, mobility work, those kind of things. I don't think I would have had the time to get this done without uh, Alan coming on as the coach. So that's nice. Um, also working on doing a lot of pitching to new sponsors. We would really like a, what you would maybe call a presenting sponsor. So we have our title sponsor, Hoka, but we're very interested in that cycling model where we have other high-level sponsors. We have some other great sponsors, don't get me wrong, Final Surge, Picky Bars, um, and um, Rudy Project Sunglasses, but um, they're not they're not that super high level in terms of cash sponsorship that we would want from a presenting sponsor. And so if we can do that, that would be great. I'm spending a lot of time on that. And then I'm, I'm still doing all the social media, though my goal is uh, to get another corporate sponsor this, so that we can pay a, a full-time social media director, uh, somebody younger, uh, that I think uh, can speak that language a little bit better. So you just got back from Japan. You were in the Osaka Marathon where your athlete Alice Wright ran 229.50. And this race is crazy to me. It's it's the only women's race. Is yes, that right? Correct. correct. And yet they shut down a city of 2.7 million. They get 10 million viewers, you told me, for the domestic TV broadcast. I heard 10 million from someone's mouth. But then I also saw five million in, e in an email. So let's just say somewhere between five and All 10 right. million. Still a lot more than any US marathon is getting. That's right. Like, is there anything the US can learn from this? Or is it just, we know the marathon is viewed differently in Japan. It's more popular as a spectator sport. Long distance running with decadence is one of the most popular you know, TV sports. But is there anything American marathoning can learn for, in terms of a promotion aspect, making it more popular? I mean, it, it is it is definitely part of the mainstream sports consciousness in Japan in a way that running is not here. But I, I tend to believe that you can do it, but it takes capital and it takes an entrepreneurial vision. Um, you know, they have the advantage of that sport having been popular in that way for a long time now. But I would almost look more to what you've seen recently with I don't know, Premier League lacrosse or, or even pickleball, where people have come in and just from the get-go said, let's create a business around this sport. Let's figure out how to make this sport entertaining. Let's get it on television and let's package it as a product. And you see, like in the case of Premier League lacrosse, CAA, Creative Arts Artists Agency, the, the biggest and best agency in the world in terms of uh, marketing and creative uh, in the marketing and creative space, they run that whole show. Whereas in running, and, and same thing in Japan, what I saw in Osaka was you've got this entire um, 
broadcast team putting this thing on the, the professionals, whereas um, and 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 their professionals across the board. Whereas in running, everything is put on by runners. We don't bring, we don't let anybody in from the outside. We try to do everything ourselves, and I think we're missing out because let's. I mean, we just need to admit we don't know everything. You know, we don't know how to put on a television broadcast. We don't know how to create a, an entertainment product. We know how to set up our heats. And we know how to qualify for the world championships and we know uh, how to get to Eugene, but we need to bring in really super bright people who are willing to say, what is this? This doesn't make any sense. We should do it this way. And then we should say, yes, you're right. Take it and run with it. So last week we passed one year to go until the Olympic marathon trials in Orlando, uh, this is basically American marathoning's Super Bowl every four years. And I'm curious, I, I want to know two things. What do you think about the trials being in Orlando as a venue, like in terms of them hosting it? And then also, we've had this story about Chattanooga was recommended uh, as the site for the trials. And then USATF, the national office, over the long distance committee recommends it. The And then the national office overrules them and says, no, we're actually going to give it to Orlando. And then they come up with this whole, there was a conflict of interest that wasn't properly dealt with. What do you make of all this? Like, do you see anything shady there? Do you, are you okay with the explanation USATF gave? So what are your thoughts on all that? I don't know. It's hard because I mean, I'll, I'll answer the question, but it's pretty speculative because I don't really have any inside information. So I'm no different than, than anybody else, but, yeah, it just seemed sort of like classic USATF where everything was rolling along and I don't know if somebody inside the building wanted Orlando and found a way to get out of the Chattanooga thing. I don't know if they were surprised that Chattanooga got picked. Um, I, I really don't. It, it feels a little bit like the LA-Houston thing in 16 where the committee picked Houston and then Max Siegel basically just vetoed it and, and used his uh, veto power and uh, said, no, we're going to L.A. It kind of sounds like that again, except instead of a veto, they, they found a they, they weaseled their way out of it. Uh, but I could be totally wrong. I mean, I could be totally wrong. I will say this. I read everything that you guys read and I didn't see anything that Jim Estes did wrong. I just saw nothing wrong with what he did. He he was forthright. He was transparent the entire time. He filled out all the paperwork he was supposed to fill out. If they had a problem with it, they they had many, many opportunities to uh, put the kibosh on that whole deal, and they never did. So so in that sense, some, something seems wrong about it. But uh, but I can't worry about that. We're, we're just focused on Orlando and getting ready for, for the course and the, the potential of heat and humidity, and we're going in with a better squad than we were last time, if that's uh, possible. So uh, we're, we're bumped. Yeah, I think the Estes thing, the thing that still strikes me the wrong way about it is like just how they it seemed like they just chose him as a scapegoat and said hey this is a reason that will stick as opposed to i really don't mind if max seal comes out and says hey the long distance committee recommended orlando chattanooga but i think orlando is the best choice for x y and z reason i'd respect that more I, that's his job as ceo if he thinks it's the best reason if the best place to maximize eyeballs or because you can get you know, generate more revenue. Well, I guess generate more revenue. That's sort of, sort of a 
testy subject with Max Siegel, but I just think it didn't seem to me like the reasoning behind it was as sound as it could have been. But I agree. I agree. Yeah. And why do you think you say your team's better than it was four years ago? Well, you guys had a pretty great, or three years ago, I guess, I suppose. You guys had a pretty great run. Alephine wins the women's race. Kellen Taylor and Stephanie Bruce both place highly. Scott Fobble didn't run his best race in Atlanta, but he was certainly one of the top contenders going in. Why do you think your team's stronger now? Yeah, I mean, you know, you guys grilled me last year, a year ago at this time. You know, we were down to 11 people and... Um... You know, um, I was confident, though, because I knew what was going on behind the scenes. I knew that Hoka was about to come out with a super shoe. I knew that um, we were working on bringing in a new coach. I knew that we were working on an amendment that was going to give us way more funding. And so here we are. You know, now we've got 18 athletes and our roster is dynamite. It's the best it's ever been. And in terms of the trials, you know, we're bringing stuff, Alphine and Kellen back. Alphine's still in the absolute prime of her career. Kellen is coming off her recent pregnancy really, really well. Um, and then we added Paige Stoner, who just ran 226.02. And then Lauren Paquette is moving up to the marathon, and she just dropped Alphine in a 10-mile tempo on Friday. So, I mean, on the women's side, I would say we're better. And then on the men's side, we've got Footsom, who Footsom Zenesalase, who just made easy work of the U.S. Marathon Championships, where basically sat there at, you know, five or whatever pace for 35 K and then blitzed everybody and won by a minute and ran sub 15 for his last five K. He's really, really good. I mean, he's, there's a reason he was top five in NCAA cross country three times in a row. Uh, very few people do that. He's very talented and his workouts have been crazy good. Um, he's going to run a spring marathon and I think he'll run really, really fast and be one of the major contenders, uh, one of the favorites, I would say. Um, and then we've got Nick Harger, who's, you know, kind of in that Scott Smith mode where, you know, he, he debuted in 212 and he's going to run a marathon this spring as well. And I think, you know, between Footsom and, and uh, Nick, that that's a good uh, that's a good pairing on the men's side. But overall, I, I just think it's um, it's a group where, look, we, we had one person go last time. I think the goal would be two or more this time. Robert Weldon, anything else for Ben before we let him go? Well, two going would be great. I mean, I'm glad you guys want that to happen. But yeah, how about an update on the, on the team as a whole? The new, you have a new coach, Alan Culpepper, contemporary of mine. You, know, you, you have more track runners, I guess I would say now. I don't know. So how, how, how has it gone incorporating with Alan, you stepping away, sort of give us a, we just focused on more the marathon there, but sort of just a general update of the team. And yeah, sure. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, like I said, we got 18 athletes, milers to marathoners. I mean, the recruiting class last year was amazing. We got Chrissy Gear, who was, you know, runner up in the mile, DMR national champ, Olin Hacker, 5,000 meter national champ, Wesley Kipdu national champ, Adrian Wilskut, you know, runner up. Um, and they kind of joined that group with Alex Masai, who's 2745 guy, and, and Katie Wasserman, who was runner up. You know, we brought them in the year before. And, and, then, we, and then we added Footsom and Paige, and then we added Cruz Culpepper. So, you know, he's 20 years old. He's one of the best. 20 year old milers in the country. So we have kind of somebody at every event or multiple people that are really high level. And this is, I mean, we're not even a year into having these people and they're already crushing it. I mean, Abby and Katie both ran under 850 in the 3K. Abby and Chrissy both ran under 430 in the mile. Um, 
Olin ran a PR in the 3000. Wesley ran one hour in the half marathon. He, to me, you know, his run there was incredible. I mean, he went toe to toe with a guy who was second at the London marathon. I mean, he destroyed some really good guys. Um, and so I just think, yeah, we're in the best place we've ever been. And this is what we wanted to do. We wanted to bring Alan in, somebody who really was passionate about the track, but also very astute in, in the, with the marathon. And he's proving to be all those things. Uh, everybody's running really well. The, the camaraderie is good. And um, we're, we're producing across the board really high marks. We really should have had Alan on. How did Alan, the key to that, you talked about the 60 flat, but how did he get Wesley Kip to, to get rid of his gloves? I mean, John and I were amazed. This guy would wear gloves every indoor race. That was his thing. That was his what he was known for. Wesley Kip to, Kenny then takes it crazy fast and always wears gloves. And then he's running in Houston. It was pretty cold. Runs the race of his life, but there's no gloves. Did he start with gloves or did Alan say, those are holding you back, buddy? Robert, Robert, you can never try to understand Wesley Kip to. That's that's rule number one. <laughs> you never know. You'd have to ask Wesley. My guess is, you know, we made him these custom gloves that are purple and orange. You know, they match our colors and they say Wesley Kip to across the glove. But a lot of times he likes to throw the gloves off if he gets too warm. And I'm just guessing, but I get I'm guessing that he didn't want to throw those gloves away. And so he just didn't wear them at all. But that's just a guess. He also could have just forgotten them. I have no idea. Uh, but that's just Wesley for you. I, I, I actually just watched his workout today. And I was asking him about Houston and he says he felt great pretty much the whole time. He was, he's really disappointed that guy nipped him at the end, but, um, he, he felt great. That's a really good zone for him. He can, he can run in that like four thirties per mile for a long time and he can change paces and it's just a great, yeah, it's a great rhythm for him. Is someone like that trying to become a U.S. citizen or has he not thought that far down the road? No, that's absolutely what he wants to do. Yeah, he should. He's on track to be a U.S. citizen in 2025. So he's married to a U.S. citizen. They have two children who, who were both born in the United States. They met at community college. Um, Marabella is his wife. She's awesome. And uh, yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll be an American citizen in 2025, if not sooner, but you just never know. Did anyone talk to him about looking back over his shoulder that lost 100 meters? Because I think it must have been... 17 times or something. What did I just tell you, Jonathan? You can never understand Wesley. (laughs) Not Okay, but Ben, you're a big sports fan. Yeah. You you answer this as a sports fan. I was saying, uh, well, I think our our sport needs a different rule change. Like, I don't, like, if you cut somebody off, I don't think you should be removed from the results and given last place. You know, your time doesn't count. But I do think we should have some sort of, if he'd won that race, I thought he should be placed second. He should be disqualified for what he was doing. You for as what? a man, did you think that was disqualified for, for what? He almost ran Gibraltar into the advertising boards. Oh, he was drifting. At, oh my God! Look at the picture. They're nowhere near it. They're nowhere near it. I saw the video. They were getting close. Look at the video. They're nowhere. Look at the picture. They're nowhere. It looked like it on video. Yeah. If you look at the picture, they're nowhere near the barrier. And here's what happened. Speaking of a sports fan, I loved that race. It was so like boxing right because wesley makes that move drops the pack the dude drops in behind him and chooses to sit wesley looks back tries to get him to help he won't help okay you don't want to help that's fine your advantage if you're sitting is that you don't have to do as much work you're saving energy you don't have to deal with the wind if there is any etc right that's your advantage your advantage is if if you're in front is you can choose any line you damn well please and he chose the line that he damn well pleased 
And yeah, he forced him outside, but he never cut him off. Cutting somebody off is if they try to pass and then you scoot over. That never happened. The only time that guy tried to pass was at the very end and he passed him. And it was great. And as a sports fan, I loved it. But I agree with you, you shouldn't be able to cut people off, but he never cut him off. Rewatch it if you want. All right. I'm sure you have. So I think he I chose his line you. and it was a fucking weird line, excuse me. But <laughs> he didn't cut anybody off. We need to, we need to go. Oh, you're not a big football fan. When I took John to the Ravens Patriots game, I remember thinking, "Wow, John's this is why he's a good journalist. He's totally objective. He was agreeing that the penalties called on the Patriots were legitimate penalties and stuff like that. He was very. This is the Robert has paid me a compliment for this game more than any story I've written. He says, "Wow, you were able to say that James White was holding on that play, and that was what he was most impressed with of anything I've done." But. I'm sure when Ben goes to this Rand game, St. Louis never committed a penalty in his entire life. No, no. <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, thank you for joining us this weekend. Uh, just to recap for everyone, that is Colin Morikawa and Keegan Bradley at the Phoenix Open. Eagles, minus one and a half, and heads on the That's opening right. coin toss. You throw that in, the Rosario Parlay, you could, I don't know how much mon- money you'll make on that, but... Uh, ben, thank you for joining us. I'm sure we'll see you at a track or at a marathon sometime soon. All right. Appreciate you guys. Thanks.